This is what I'm doing it for. I, I'm not trying to make life easy. <laughs> if, it was, if it was going to be easy, then it wouldn't be hard, and we're, we're looking for it to be hard, so. <laughs> hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to The Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now, it's a great day for a great episode to talk with a great all-around climber, Mr. Dave McLeod. Okay, I uh, promise you that I will not try a Scottish accent again, but God, is it fun to listen to this guy talk. Not just because of his accent, which is fantastic, but he is just one of the most cerebral climbers that I've had the pleasure of hosting on this show, and also one of the boldest, most talented, and most driven out there. Hailing from the Highlands of Scotland, Dave has methodically worked his way up to the highest levels of the sport, and he sits at the very top when it comes to heady trad ascents on the notoriously poorly protected gritstone in his backyard there in Scotland. He's bouldered up to V15, or Font 8C, climbed 14D, or 9A, free soloed up to 14A slash B, which is 8B+, and he's done E11 trad which, as Dave and I discussed uh, in our conversation, is basically like free soloing. Now, his first ascents are too many to name, but most notably, he put up the world's first E11 trad route, Rhapsody, as well as Echo Wall, which might even be harder than that. Maybe E12. We'll see. We talk about that a little bit. Now, from boulders to big walls, rock to ice to mixed, Dave has a truly unique ability to zero in on very hard moves, on very scary exposure, and just systematically break it all down to a manageable process until the thing can be done. It is so impressive, if not because it's not superhuman, like he just works away at it and he gets it done. Now, beyond his performance on rock, Dave has been contributing to the sport for a decade now as a researcher, author, blogger, and YouTuber. He holds an undergrad degree in sports science and physiology and dual masters in exercise science and human nutrition. He's the author of some books, 9 out of 10 Climbers Make the Same Mistakes is one of my favorites. I've read it cover to cover many, many times, and I highly recommend it. And also Make or Break, uh, which covers training and injury prevention. So good. Dave's just a real personality in the sport, and he can be a bit polarizing, maybe even intentionally. I don't know. Maybe he invites some of that polarization. I mean, he and I definitely don't see eye to eye on a number of things, mainly when it comes to nutrition. But then again, he's an expert, and I'm just a guy talking into a microphone right now. But man, do I just have the utmost respect and admiration for him, his climbing, and the high-quality content that he continues to give away to all of us who are eager to learn and level up. Now, you may have noticed that this is a two-parter, and that is because Dave is just too damn thoughtful to give a straight answer, and I didn't want to edit things down so much that we lost the important nuance of the various topics that we hit on. So, this episode here is going to explore struggle, training, and nutrition, and then next week we'll dive into tactics, mental game, and a few other surprising and super exciting tangents that are sure to provide plenty of food for thought. All right, how about a little update from the road to 13A that I have been hitchhiking my way along this fall season. If you've been following along on the Instas, you may have seen that I had a pretty big breakthrough uh, just a few days ago here on the Proj. The temps and humidity dropped, and I dialed in some new beta, and all of that meant that I managed to get my first one hang on the route and also a big new high point going from the ground up to the last draw. 
although my forearms absolutely exploded off of the wall before I could clip that last straw. I'm just so psyched, you guys, because I feel like for the first time in this long process, I am capable of doing this thing. Like, I had that realization when I was on the route just a few days ago, and that is such a good feeling. It was also really fun to have Coach Eric Hurst out there to shout out some support as I was making that push and to help me out with a little bit of guidance as well. He and I are going to be doing an episode together soon here, I think in like two weeks, with a more thorough look at the process, like where I've come from and what I still need to do to put this limit project together. It is definitely going to be a struggle. It's a journey. But man, I'm just having a time of my life on it, and I appreciate you all following along. Now, speaking of Coach Hurst, you all know that the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the struggle is Fizzy Vantage, the company that he founded. Guys, I've been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for a couple of years now. And I think that's important to point out. Like, I only partner with brands that I personally use and love and can get behind. And right now, I have been using the heck out of my Fizzy Vantage. I've been doubling up on Sendurex to give me an extra endurance boost on my long, pumpy proj. And also, their crazy, delicious PowerPlex vegan protein. I've been chugging that stuff to aid in my recovery and get the protein that I need. It is such, such good stuff. Formulated by climbers for climbers. And their athlete team is just the who's who of crushers, including Alex Magos and Jordan Cannon, both of whom are out at the red right now. Love seeing that. And also Daniel Woods, Natalia Grossman, and Jonathan Seegers, and more than like 40 other top names in climbing. They're all using Fizzy Vantage every day to level up their performance and their recovery. If you're looking for that extra edge, hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full price nutrition order over at fizzyvantage.com. I really think you're going to feel the difference. The stuff is the best. Swing by fizzyvantage.com to check it all out. Now, in today's episode, Dave walks us through his training routine and how he uses a hangboard to consistently build up his finger strength, famously jumping three-letter grades in just 18 months. Now, I'm also using the board a little bit this season, one day a week to keep that max finger strength from slipping as I'm working on the project. And I'm doing those hangs on my Frictitious board, which has a magic doorway mount attachment so that I can make it disappear once my workout is done, which keeps my wife happy because for some crazy reason, she doesn't love a chalky hangboard on display all the time. Look, y'all, this is the coolest. Their doorway mount allows you to set up a hangboard in just minutes without drilling, without screwing or mounting anything permanently into your walls. I love the boards that Fertitious makes. They're really comfortable, and they give you 20% off when you buy one with the doorway kit. But you can also mount any other board that you have, like the Beastmaker or the Lattice or whatever. They even have a pulley attachment for when you want to reduce the load. If you can't drill a board into your wall, whether you rent or you're a student, or maybe like me, your partner just isn't as psyched on climbing as you are, you can store this thing under your bed or in a closet or whatever, and then in seconds, pop it into the doorway, get your workout in, and then make it disappear. It is such a cool system. Hit that link in your show notes or pop by frictitiousclimbing.com to see it in action. And get 20% off a hangboard when you purchase that rad doorway mount. And lastly, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. If that is you, thank you. I love you. You not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get an extended version of this interview with Dave that has about 15 minutes of bonus material at the very end here, where Dave shares some pretty banger training tips. Now, if you're not a patron or subscriber, I still love you, and you can check all of that out right now for free. And I'm going to tell you more about that at the very end. But first, let's get thoughtful, bold, and a little bit carnivorous with Dave McLeod.
Hey man, I really appreciate your time. Thank you uh, for joining the show. It's great to meet you. No worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise. Yeah, and uh, good to be on your podcast. I like the concept as well. The struggle. That's a good, good concept. <laughs> well, uh, a man here who's had no shortage of struggles. I'm excited to peel back on some of those. But before we jump in, do you have any questions or any thoughts after looking at the format? Not really. No, I'm happy to jump in to chat about claiming. All right, let's do it. I've got a lot. I got a lot on my plate here for you. <laughs> I've got a tall stack of McDonald's patties of <laughs> content for you here, Dave. Brilliant. <laughs> but we'll go through the format here. And before we dive into training, nutrition, tactics, mental game, the usual things, I like to just zoom out and talk about struggle as a concept and what your relationship is with struggle and how you view struggle as a rock climber. Yeah, well, I think of struggling as, as the point of actually doing claiming itself. I think of claiming as the platform for struggling. That's really what I'm, what I'm in it for. I was actually, I've just been writing a book about my era, my claiming apprenticeship. And just in the sort of opening chapter, I'm talking about soloing a route, a nice route on Ben Nevis. And I was kind of going through my mind as why am I here? I was telling this story about being under a bulge and there was a sort of curtain of spindrift flying off this bulge and I was trying to climb into it and I was really quite sort of scared and reversing back down several times and so I was kind of stuck for a while. Not really the situation you want to be in when you're soloing but as I was there I was finding myself wishing and I was thinking all I want to be is on the other side of that bulge. That's all that matters in, in, in my world right now. But then even as I was there I was thinking that doesn't really make sense because I know that as soon as I get to the other side of that bulge, I'm already going to be missing being here. I'm going to be on a countdown to the next time I'm under another <laughs> steep piece of rock or ice and, and sort of struggling away with that. So I think that was one of the first times, and this is when I was a teenager, you know, that was one of the first times where I really realized that um, ha having a project to lean against whether that's a, a single project like a claim or a bigger project like how hard can I claim <laughs> is really the, the point um, of the whole exercise. So I, I think of claiming as the platform for struggling and struggling no, no matter what field it's in, whether it's struggling to understand something, struggling to gain strength or to master a sport or what, or a career or anything, that really is the kind of objective. So, and I think if you have, that's what I'm saying, I like the title of your podcast because I think if you have that outlook that that is actually what you're looking for then it really helps you to psychologically to get through difficult periods and challenges because it keeps reminding you it's like this is what I'm doing it for I, I'm not trying to make life easy <laughs> you know that, that basic idea of like right. if, if if it was if it was going to be easy then it wouldn't be hard and we're, we're looking for it to be hard so <laughs> indeed I really appreciate that outlook. I love that perspective. I think it's great. I love that you're having these thoughts while on a solo as well, <laughs> going through existential thoughts and crises in the middle of a, a crux. And I think, you know, part of why I came up with a format for this podcast and called it The Struggle is that there is an element of universality to it. There's a an empathy amongst climbers, whether I'm struggling on my first 513, which is what I'm the grade I'm trying to break into this fall, or you on E11 or somebody else on a V4 slab boulder, 
the experience of struggle is the same. It's just, it, it elevators up and down based maybe on one's ability or one's experience, but um, I'm surely going to be struggling just as much this fall on my 513 as I was when I was trying to break into 511 or, you know, as you may be as you're going for 9A+. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's one of the, the really nice things about climbing and, and about sport in general is that we're all going through the, the same process, just at different levels. So, yeah, that's one of the things I really love about it as well. Good. Let's dive in. Let's get into some struggle here, uh, a struggle stew, if you will. And let's look at training first. Mm -hmm. I've got a litany of things that I want to talk with you here. You are certainly a foremost expert in the field of training, having written books and incredible posts and studying the sport for so long. But let's enter as we do through struggle. And where do you personally struggle in your training or where have you struggled in your training, Dave? I would say the biggest weakness I've had is to improve my basic strength to weight ratio in climbing. Like I, I had a really excellent apprenticeship and I was very lucky in the crag that I started climbing at, Dumbarton Rock near Glasgow. It is basalt and it's very intricate technical climbing there. Quite smooth, polished rock, but a lot of different shapes. It's a little bit more intricate than say limestone or granite climbing. So it really rewards attention to detail in your movement. And so I learned that quite early on and I learned to value it. And I, I took on this kind of goal early on of trying to do all the claims there. No one had ever done that before. Um, so that, that was one of the best decisions I ever made was to not just do some of them or try to push my grade there, but to do all of them. Because it gave me this really broad base of technique where you just had to be good at everything. And I remember climbers saying, there that if, if you can do well at Dumbarton Rock, you can probably climb well anywhere. And I think that's probably true. So I had this good grounding in movement technique and also the ability to work out moves. So especially in red pointing, it's always been a big strength of mine to find a good sequence. And I've really milked that. But where I've come up against my limits compared to other climbers is just pure basic strength to weight ratio. I think I respond reasonably well to strength training, but not exceptionally so. So, you know, if I do campusing or weights or um, hangboarding or bouldering, my fingers do get stronger, but not exceptionally so, you know, not in the same way that, you know, some of the very strongest climbers have done. So I, I think I respond moderately well to strength training, but then the other side of that strength to weight ratio aspect being, being weight, I've always uh, struggled with overweight my whole life actually my whole life since I was sort of early teen early teens and so that's been where I've really come up against my limits and for a long time didn't really have many good solutions but I, I mean my pro my progress through working through that problem has gone through many different stages uh, one key one was just starting to hangboard which I did in about 2005 when I'd, I'd already been climbing for about 10, 11 years at that point, I got up to the point where I could maybe on site about 13A, 13B and red point. I'd red pointed a few 14As and, and maybe one, one 14B. And I was trying a, a 14B project in Scotland and just didn't quite have the power. And this was at the end of the spring season when the good conditions were running out. And over the summer, which is kind of the off season for me because it's a bit warm and humid in Scotland. I decided to 
start a program of hangboarding and give it a real chance, you know, really consistently do it for a good spell. And so I did that six days a week through this summer and I had a, a great jump there, like a, a good solid increase in finger strength. And because I had already developed my technique to a good level, a very small increase in finger strength gave me a lot of leverage. <laughs> so I was able to use that. Right. Yeah, I was able to use that increase in strength to go to comfortably doing 8C to then the following year doing 8C plus and 9A. So yeah, 14D. Yeah, let, let me peel back on that a little bit because you, this was kind of, has been a famous training chapter, I think, in, in your life, which was the the headline is essentially you picked up four grades of climbing by hangboarding for 18 months or something mm -hmm. along those lines, if, if I recall. And prior to this, you had mentioned that you may not be a very strong responder to strength training. Um, it sounds like in that scenario, to, to the point that you just made, that perhaps it wasn't a huge jump in strength training, but your technique was so dialed that even a small jump in your overall strength led to this significant uh, jump in grades. And I'm curious about the hangboard routine as it was and as it is now. You noted in 9 out of 10 climbers, which I've got a very dog-eared copy here. I'll tell you, I've read it many times and it's highlighted in many different colors. I think it's a fantastic book and I think it's laid out in a really clear way. I always get something out of it when I open it up. And you laid out in that you felt the crimp was an overused and overtrained grip, especially compared to an open grip. And so I'm curious, when you dove into hangboarding, what were you training on the board? And has that changed now, maybe, what is it, 15 years later, 20 years later? It hasn't actually. So when I started hangboarding, I did the three main grip types. So a crimp grip and a three-finger drag, fully open-handed, and what people would call a chisel grip, like four-finger open-handed, sort of halfway in between. So your, your little finger and your index finger or in a fully open position, but middle two, or just have a slight bend in the pit joint. So I was doing all the grip types at that point because I that was a lesson that I'd learned a little bit earlier, was that the, the value of having those different grip types. That was an earlier jump I had in my climbing standard, which came through having pulley injuries just back to back. I can't say for sure what the cause of those pulley injuries were, but I was, I was getting them in every finger, just multiple. I don't know. I can't remember how many I had, but it was... It was well more than 10, possibly more than 20, actually, over the course wow. of about five or six years. And I just was constantly, it was either one pulley was injured or two, or just all the time. So after getting frustrated with not being able to train, <clears throat> I was getting to the point where I just was hardly climbing. And that's what started me climbing with a three-finger drag. And uh, once I started doing that, I started to, and once I, I gave it, I did it for long enough to actually gain sufficient strength in my three-finger drag that it became useful. Because <laughs> at first I was so weak in it, I had the same sensation that many people have, which is that this three-finger drag just doesn't really work very well in small holds. And so you might conclude that it's not a good grip to use. And that's what I did initially as well. But once I was forced to keep using it because I had no other option, but once I got strong enough on it, I actually found that I preferred it on many holds and I started to use it about half the time or maybe even more. So my grip type became much more versatile. And once I recovered from my injuries, I found that the rate of pulley injuries that I had went way down. Now, I don't know if that was because I was 
using a more balanced grip type, it may be, but there may also be other reasons. It, it, it may also be that I just didn't have a good enough training ligaments to actually be able to tolerate that. So these days, I mean, I think possibly in nine out of 10, I might have been a, a bit more forceful about suggesting that using those different grip types played a role in me having fewer injuries of that type. These days, I would be a little bit more cautious about that and think, I can't say that for sure. <laughs> I just ex experientially and N equals one for you and for me mm -hmm. and for everybody else out there that's kind of experimenting on their own body. But for me, climbing at the Red River Gorge like I do, it's very pockety, jugs, pockets, overhung. And I've mm. almost predominantly, I mean, almost exclusively rather, climb in an open or a drag type grip. And as I've been trying to train up to to raise my levels, my, my big weakness has been boulder strength so moon board i've been focusing a lot on the moon board this mm -hmm. summer and half crimp on the hang board at the end of my just recent block of using a lot of half crimp i've experienced some some real tenderness in my knuckles maybe it's capsulitis i think that's what some friends have kind of diagnosed on mm -hmm. my behalf for me and i'd never experienced that obviously that's not as significant as a rupture or that kind of thing but at least through my experience going pretty hard on the half crimp has taken its toll on my fingers. And so I'm curious from what you've experienced as well, can one train heavy hangs on a hangboard, for example, or lifting off the ground in an open hand? That's a good question, which I'm not sure I really know the answer to. I can give you my own anecdotal experience from my own training history. And, and also a general point, which is that muscles in general if you strength train them at a certain range, part of the range of motion, they will get stronger in that part of the range of motion. So that would lead you to, that basic knowledge of how muscles work would lead you to think that you would need to train the finger flexors at different lengths that is crimped right down, more flexed or, or more open in order uh, to have gains um, on those different grip types. But the medical setup of the fingers is a, just a bit more complex than that. I mean, for one thing, there's two separate muscles, the, you know, the superficialis mm. and like flexing one joint and then, you know, there's the other joint. So there's, it's hard to say for sure. There's no studies that have been done to say this either way. In my own experience, I would say that it's important to train all the grip types in order to get stronger at all the grip types. And I think, you know, you can see that from, if you observe different climbers, you know, I, certainly from coaching myself when we go to the fingerboard and it's very often with intermediate climbers and even some quite high level climbers who are not familiar with the three finger drag if they try to to hang in that position their strength is way worse <laughs> but then if they just train that grip for what for a good while for many months then it, it will catch up and eventually equalize and that was that's exactly what happened to me right. like when i first started to use that grip it was so weak and felt so awkward that my climbing standard had to drop. And now when I take a small edge, it's getting to the point where it's six and half a dozen. Like it's, it doesn't really matter too much whether I take it with either grip. You know, there are slight advantages depending on the hold shape from this hold to that, but sometimes it's hard to predict from If I look, just look at a hold, it's hard to predict whether it will be best for me to hold it with a crimp or open hand. 
And I, I think that's where I feel like I want to be, is for all those grip types to be fairly equal. And then I feel like I have a versatile sort of platform of strength, if you like, to handle all hold shapes, because, you know, that's just the way climbing is. You know, you have this massive variety of hold shapes and you've really got to be able to handle it all. Possibly that's a bit of a question. Like I'm not very definitive, but I, I just don't really know. Uh, I'd love someone to to run a suitably long study on this. There was, you know, that went for long enough and had enough participants to really see the, the differences between different protocols. One group does half crimp. <laughs> one group group does only open hand, and one group does both together. And they do that for a solid three months or preferably six months or preferably a year. <laughs> and then we compare how their strength is gained in each of those different grip types. And I, I wouldn't be too confident to put money on the results. I, I don't really know what would happen. Right. Well, but, but given what I've said, I would say that I would, I would come down on the side of wanting to train all of those grip types. Yeah, I, I think that's a great perspective. And if, if there's one certainty I think that we're going to run into in this conversation, it's that you will probably dodge making claims of any certainty. So I will prepare myself for you to say that the answer is you're not sure. But I'm going to try to hold you some conclusions in here, if nothing else, just for personal conclusions. And I did have a patron question that came in right along this topic from Thomas, who asked whether you train all three of those grip positions equally year-round, or if you adjust your focus based on a project that you have that might be more dominant in one or another of those grip types. Yeah, most of the time, I just train all three. I have a sort of standard board workout, which, which always includes all three. However, I, I also... Um, and I also do some specific training for bouldering. So, for example, just before I came on to speak to you, I've just had a session on my board this afternoon and I was uh, bouldering on some crimpy undercuts because two of my projects for this coming winter have holds that are like that, you know, crimpy undercuts with a thumb on. And so I've just been sort of replicating that. Uh, but so it's, it's both. I guess the answer is both. So the, the hangboard... It's pretty basic training. It doesn't take very long to do. So I tend to just cover all the bases in that. I cover all the grip types all the time. But in the bouldering, I have a mix of just doing general bouldering that is going to cover all whole types. Also, on many of my sessions, I generally have in mind what's coming down the line in a few months. And I'll do some specific training for that. So I will have some boulder problems where I'm like, right, I'm super weak on you know, a, a pinch or crimping or undercutting or something, and I'll direct my focus to that. So usually with training, you're, you're actually tending to try and cover all your bases, but, you know, just do it session by session. So not every session looks exactly the same, but if you take the whole week, you've actually done a bit of everything. Right. Crippy underclings uh, brings to mind uh, Ben Moon's Hubble. Is that in your sights right now? Oh, I'd love to do Hubble, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's such an iconic route. It was first climbed just before I started climbing myself and you know it was so when I started climbing it was the hardest route in the world and very interesting that that was a long time ago now but Hubble still has not had many ascents just shows you what a good effort it was at the time how ahead of its time it was so yeah I'd love to do that but actually it's more a boulder problem that I tried for the whole of last winter I maybe had 25 or 30 sessions on it last winter 
and that's all an undercuts at the start and just so powerful i just and i i had I spent so long in it that i'd i could actually do the crocs about four different ways but not consistently enough to be able to get through like the first three or four moves in a row uh, so it just comes down to i just don't have the power i just need to increase my power level to do it uh, so yeah it's just very burly brutal boulder problems that i'm just working on at the moment i actually i've set a model of that problem and it's so hard that um, only in really good conditions i can actually do the moves so some of the time i've just been like actually pulling on to the undercuts and just trying to hold on in a kind of locked off position for for as long as i can which is not very long so it's almost like a hangboarding on the wall but it's just holding that undercut position trying to stand up high into it you know the very basic stuff All right, y'all, let's take a quick breather here to shout out a shoemaker that has been helping me to stay on the wall as I take on my hardest project ever, and that is Scarpa. Guys, I've been using Scarpas for a decade now, and I just love the way that they fit and perform on rock. The Instinct VSs have been a game changer for me on this steep pockety route that I've been projecting, sticking in those tiny little pockets like Velcro so that I can move with confidence and take some weight off my poor, weak fingers that hopefully... We'll be getting stronger as I follow some of Dave's advice there. Look, they're just the most well-designed and manufactured shoes around, whether you're a weekend warrior like me, or a pro like Matty Hong, Nathaniel Coleman, Alex Puccio, Nina Williams, or Sean Rabatou. Scarpa has got you covered. They've been sustainably making the best footwear for climbers, trail runners, skiers, and hikers since 1938. That's a few years ago, y'all. And that sustainability call-out, by the way, isn't just lip service, okay? They're committed to sustainable production, carving a path for those of us who not only seek peak performance, but also a planet that'll be preserved to be explored for generations to come. I love it. I love my approach shoes. I love my climbing shoes. And I think you will too. You can shop the whole collection over at scarpa.com. Scarpa, no place too far. All right, let's get back to Dave. Talking about nutrition now, and it's also something that you mentioned earlier on, one of your struggles was optimizing the strength to weight ratio. Nutrition comes into play there. And unless you, dear listener, have been living under a cave or a rock, and I'm not talking about the kind in Yosemite, you are certainly aware of the sometimes provocative and wild nutritional adventures of Mr. Dave McLeod here. So this is a ripe area, an area that you have a degree and an expertise in. So I'm excited to dive into nutrition with you, Dave. But first, as always, where do you struggle in your nutrition specifically? Just trying to to stay, to remain lean enough. I, I, I would be really quite overweight, I think, if I wasn't a climber. Uh, I was when I was a teenager. And I've always struggled with that up until about six years ago when I started to pay a lot more attention to nutrition and, and start to approach, try to approach it fresh eyes really and a bit of a more skeptical view <laughs> and then I started to get somewhere and I have since solved those struggles and now um, although I do still struggle in a way to exist in the western food environment with junk food all around us I, I feel like I, I know myself and I know how my own body responds to different ways of eating I no longer have a feeling, which is like a feeling of confusion, which I had for about 20 years. And it's like, the feeling was, why can I not seem to stay on top of this one area? 
like all these other climbers, even good climbers who I really admired and look up to a lot, uh, would say to me, like, Dave, you're like the most driven climber I've ever met. And that kind of blew me away, like, that like such good climbers would say that they felt like I was very motivated and disciplined and took an analytical approach to things. And it's like, well, why can I not just master this one area? And I think the difference was starting to appreciate that I was paying a lot of attention to amount of food <laughs> and not enough attention to type of food. And that, that's the kind of point to open the discussion on nutrition here. I love that. I love that doorway. Let's jump right into it. I think maybe it could be important here to set the table with some terminology. And we've talked about weight, but I've also heard you write about and talk about body composition. And if you might give me just a 101 level differentiator on weight and body composition, and perhaps what's the most important for climbers to be paying more attention to. Yeah. I mean, like many things in biology, when it comes to weight and climbing, it's a U-shaped curve. <laughs> so there's, if your scale weight is too low, then it will be very harmful to both your climbing performance and your health. And if your scale weight is extremely high, it will be very harmful to your performance and also your health. <laughs> um, so a bit, there's, there's a sweet spot for, for everyone somewhere in between. And going beyond that to think about body composition, that's, you know, you have the weight of your skeleton, which is quite light. You have the weight of your organs. And then beyond that, the big components of your scale weight are going to be muscle and fat. And generally the goal of athletes is to have the right amount of muscle and the right amount of fat. For climbers, the right amount of muscle is probably going to be on the low side compared to many other sports where the other sports may not have to move their body weight against gravity. Climbing, fortunately or unfortunately, it does make it one of the biggest challenges is that like distance running and a couple of other body weight sports, it tends to be better to have the lowest amount of functional muscle possible because any excess muscle is not going to really help you that much unless it's in your forearms. I think probably climbers could have as big as forearms as they like and it would they could get to a very high level of forearm muscle mass before it would start to be disadvantageous. But having massive mountaineers quadriceps <laughs> like I do from carrying very heavy trad racks up big mountains, that starts to become counterproductive for hard rock climbing. And likewise with fat mass, you need a certain amount of subcutaneous fat mass in order for your body to run properly. There is a, like a quite a hard lower limit, males and females, with variation between individuals. It's slightly lower for males. Males can get down to quite low, sometimes single digit uh, percentage body fats. Females, it tends to be double digit and it can be quite high, the lower limit before it starts to cause real health impairment. And the uh, climbers really have to watch out for that, that lower limit. It's very well documented, including on your podcast, many examples of climbers who've gone below that limit and have caused themselves serious health problems, which are very complex and difficult to resolve. So that that's a worry for climbers. It's also not really talked about there so much. Unfortunately, the other side of it, there are many climbers out there who struggle with the opposite problem of just fighting against becoming overweight. And I think sometimes one actually leads to the other. 
where climbers who struggle with being overweight and are fighting against that end up fighting harder and eventually develop disordered eating and succeed in becoming lean but end up going too far in the opposite way. So these two extremes of overweight and underweight I, I, I hypothesize are actually linked and one can actually cause the other. You really like, it's not just that um, being uh, lighter, like having a lower body fat percentage is better. It's having an, optim an, an optimum body fat percentage is going to be as low as, as low as you can get it without causing problems. But in practical terms, you usually need to be quite conservative with that because unfortunately it can be difficult to know that you've run into problems before it's too late. <laughs> and there are some, if people are concerned about that, if they think, well, could I be too, too light or could I have a body composition, a body fat percentage, which could be too low, then there are a few things you can do to check that. A DEXA scan is a great simple way to, to do that. They're not too expensive. They cost about hundred pounds in the UK, possibly it could be about hundred dollars in the US. I'm not sure, but that's a way to, to objectively see, get a much better idea of what your body, your body composition is, what your body fat percentage is. It will also give you information about your bone density and loss of bone mass is one of the important health risks of, of being too lean for, for too long. So that's a great way to do it. There are other things you can do with testing, with blood testing as well. For, for women, a key marker is loss or disruption of their menstrual cycle. For men, it can be the morning testosterone meter. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google that. <laughs> that can be a good idea to tell you whether um, insufficient energy for too long is causing you, you problems. I'm sort of been at the other end of that scale where it's been overweight, that has been my problem. And, and I, I know that I'm not alone because a lot of people also share with me that they, they have that same experience. Uh, it, well, thank you for setting the table there. I think that my presumption, and this is rooted in nothing but just the conversations I've had with the people who listen to the podcast. So this is not a scientific analysis here, but based on most of the conversations I've had, those who are listening to a climbing podcast are weekend warriors. They're not professional climbers, though some professional climbers do listen and high pros. Thank you for listening. But for the most part, we amateur climbers, weekend warriors who climb for fun, for sport, and to challenge ourselves, ha have opportunities for optimization with regard to body composition. We, we haven't eked out every percentage that we possibly could. We're not at single digit, you know, body fat percent for men or, you know, in the teens for women. We're going to be a little bit higher than that because, at least in my case, I'm a dad and I eat birthday cake and drink beers after a day at the crag and these kinds of things. And so when I do want to tuck into a performance season, like I've got coming up this fall, there mm -hmm. is some low hanging fruit there in order to probably mm -hmm. drop, in my case, maybe five pounds. I've always been pretty lean, but there's certainly an opportunity here. And it wouldn't be hard for me to probably shed five pounds if I just walked away from the beer for a little bit. Others, maybe it's a little bit more challenging to keep their body composition somewhat optimized throughout uh, a, a year or up and down per season. So now that we understand a little bit of what we should be looking at through a DEXA scan, or uh, maybe we just have a, a general idea just by looking in the mirror, if there's an opportunity for improvement, where are the biggest levers of efficacy 
do you feel that we can use nutrition for to optimize weight, body composition, energy, maybe testosterone, some, some of these other factors? Obviously, you famously conducted some pretty extreme, if you will, experiments with yourself. And while we don't need to probably rehash a lot of those because you've done an incredible job on your YouTube, which mm -hmm. I would point everybody to, you, you put together very well-researched, planned, and well-edited videos. You also write very well on your blog and on Instagram. So we probably don't need to do a deep dive on the mechanics of some of the experiments you've done, but I would like to understand at least some of the key learnings and conclusions that you've drawn for yourself and anything that might apply to those who are listening with regard to pulling a few of those levers to to optimize nutrition in a way that will help us to climb the best we can. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the, the biggest low-hanging fruit is to reduce, reduce junk food intake. But I love junk food. <laughs> Everyone loves junk food. I love junk food too. But the, well, there's an this is like a really interesting uh, subject. Straight away, it's funny, it's like straight away you mentioned junk food and it becomes quite a charged topic because it's like, well, Yes, we, we love junk, everyone loves junk food. And um, so uh, it, it's it's quite difficult to achieve sustainable leanness, I think, eating substantial amounts of junk food. I don't think that should be a massively controversial thing to say. <laughs> right. They can do it. It has famously done, I and mean, you were talking about my diet experiments, but there are plenty of diet experiments that have been done. I mean, I did one in McDonald's and so someone else did the same eating the whole McDonald's meal, like eating the fries and the whole burger with the bun and the Coke and all that. But they just tracked their calories and they reduced their calories and did that. So you can do that. <laughs> you can eat junk food, but just less of it. And if that right. works for you, then that works for you. <laughs> but I would suggest that would be a method that may work for some people in the short term, but would start to become very painful in the long term and they would find that they were fighting against themselves, both fighting against hunger, fluctuations in energy, and also cravings to eat that way more. Certainly that's my experience is that if I, if I eat junk food, I just crave more junk food. And so I get into this, this fight um, and that's where the difficulty lies. So junk foods, reducing that or eliminating it, whichever is easier for you, that's another thing to kind of open out is the strategy that you employ. One of the things that's often put forward as an idea is, you know, let's say it's cake. Just have a piece of cake. Just have one piece of cake. It's fine, you know. And and then like next week, you could have another piece of cake. And that's absolutely true if that works for you. So if moderation works for you, and it definitely does for a proportion of people, then great. <laughs> as long as you're getting the results, then that's fine. Now, moderation does not work for me. <laughs> and I, I, I tried for 20 plus years. <laughs> and I, that, that was one of my key changes that I made in nutrition was to realize that the idea of everything moderation was exactly what I needed to move away from. And as soon as I started to move away from that idea, that's when I started to see some results, not just in terms of the body composition and the climbing, but in terms of having a much more comfortable relationship with myself and my appetite for food. So in my wife's birthday was last week, I had some cake. That's fine. I, I don't feel in the slightest bit of concern or guilt or a hang up about that at all. I, I had quite a lot of cake, <laughs> but I now realize that I'm going to fight against myself for a few days after that. Now, 
if I have another piece of cake or whatever junk food uh, every few days, that's that sort of moderation strategy. I'm just in a constant fight with myself. It's like constantly giving yourself the, the your brain that sort of sense that that's there and then forcing it to resist the temptation again and again. However, if I just do the opposite and just make the core of my diet not eating junk food at all, then when my wife's birthday comes around once a year, <laughs> then I can have some cake and then know that I'm going to fight that craving for a few days, but then it will go away. It already has actually just from a few days of going back to my normal diet. And so that strategy works very well. But one of the things I wanted to say about junk food is that um, what actually characterizes junk foods, because if you go to the shopping mall or the airport or just go and observe a non-claiming population, especially in your country, <laughs> but also in, in my country, you can see that the proportion of people who are struggling with massive overweight is huge and it's getting bigger very, very quickly. And that didn't that wasn't like that 50 years ago. This is a very rapid change. And this is one of the areas that's still controversial in nutrition now is exactly what is it about processed food, modern processed food, junk food, which is actually causing that disruption of appetite and making people overeat and gain weight. That's still actually unclear and there's no real consensus on it. There's several different things I could talk for hours on this subject and, and un un unpack all the speculations about it, but it's not really understood. But one aspect of junk food uh, is that it tends to be very low in protein and it tends to be a combination of carbohydrate and fat together. Now, what it is about that that makes people overeat that type of food? Some people say it's the, the absence of protein in food. Some people say it's the combination of carbs and fat together. It's not totally clear. But what seems to be clear is that if you move in almost any direction away from that breakdown of macros, that's when you get to see some results. So if you increase the protein percentage in, in either a single food that you eat or your whole diet in a day or a week or whatever, that will tend to make it easier to become leaner and not feel, not feel cravings and feel hungry all the time in the process. And you can either go to the low fat end and eat very, a very high carb, very low fat diet, and that tends to make people quite lean. Or you can go to a very high fat and very low carb diet, and that's my preferred strategy. And that will also tend to make you quite lean. The trouble is when you're kind of in the middle. <laughs> um, and that's what characterizes Western drunk food. And that's why reducing it or eliminating it as close as you can to that is, is a winning strategy. Thanks. I, I appreciate the uh, perspective there. And, and certainly that's a big lever that I can pull. And, and to your point, probably a lot of people can pull, which is just being more mindful of bringing in um, nutrition regularly that's more nutrient dense and less junk food, um, usually a, a good way to go, even if you're not uh, trying to perform at your highest as an athlete. This dovetails well into a patron question that I want to bring up because this brings in that last point that you made where you have found success for yourself personally on a higher protein, higher fat, lower carb diet. And this comes in from Casey, who, who does quite a bit of research himself. And he says, for most athletes, carbohydrates are essential for training performance and recovery. Muscle physiology and metabolic function dictate that our bodies perform optimally from an output perspective with an adequate amount of this fuel. My question is, as an extremely high level athlete and thorough researcher yourself, 
how do you explain your perpetually low level of carbohydrate intake as it relates to your continued excellent performance? And then Casey goes on to say that he's a huge fan and he's always thought of you as a very intriguing and interesting case in the low carb athlete world. And he thanks you for all that you've done for the community. We all thank you, Dave. But this can be nutrition, maybe more than anything else, can be a little bit of a, a hot topic. And mm -hmm. I'm excited to dive in from my own point of view as a vegetarian and have been for a very long time. I, I didn't bring my boxing gloves because you are in a different weight class than me with regards to research and experience. But I do have some questions from my own point of view. But let's address Casey's first. Well, I'll just start by saying... I've done many diet experiments over the last uh, seven or eight years. I've spent long periods uh, of more than a year at a time on very low carb diets. So that would be 50, 50 grams per day or, or less digestible carbs. And But I've also done experiments doing the opposite of being 80, 90% carbs. And in fact, recently in, in the spring there, I did a a vegetarian diet for a spell myself for a couple of months of 80% carb and you're eating like I don't know several hundred grams of carbs a day so I've done all of these all of these diets really but yeah it's fair to say that I've spent long periods on a very low carb diet sometimes even lower than 50 grams more like 20 and um, with no detriment in, in performance that I could that I've been able to find any aspect of climbing whether that's strength and power in endurance or any other issue I've, I've not been able to bump up against a lower limit really of carbohydrate at which i start to run like, into problems mean, meaning that really... you're assessed you have you never at any time depleted your like muscle glycogen even doing like big walls and in these kinds of things no i have i have managed to deplete muscle glycogen but that's been i have i've had to add on another layer if you like so just to, exp to explain the concept, so, you know, muscle glycogen is a stored form of carbohydrate in your muscle and liver. You can't really store all that much, so the, the, the store does run out fairly quickly. You know, famously, that's the most famous example is the wall, the so-called wall in, in marathon, where around the two-hour mark of exercise, often for people it's around 20 miles, they hit the wall where they run out of muscle glycogen and they not only lose motivation to finish the race, but they just can't. They just can't carry on. They they can slow to a walking pace and continue, um, but they 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 can't maintain that pace no matter what they do. Without muscle glycogen, you can't produce a high power output. That's the bottom line. So there's that that is the interesting point that your questioner gets to is like, how do you have this low carbohydrate intake but still maintain uh, glycogen availability and um, I think there's, there's a few parts to this. Uh, one is that carbohydrate can be made in the body from other substrates. It can be made from protein. It can be made from the glycerol backbone that's stored with, with fat. It can, in very small amounts, even be made from fat, but only very small amounts. Um, but it can also be quite efficiently recycled via lactate and then back to glucose. So, um, and then... So that's, what, that's one aspect is that carbohydrate can be made from other things. So if you're only eating fat and protein, you can still make carbohydrate. So if you actually burn glucose and, ex and excrete it, lose that carbon, you can replace it. The second part is the muscle mass involved in climbing is what differentiates it from other sports. And I think it's what differentiates 
the outcomes with low carb diets uh, from other sports. If I was a 400 meter sprinter, I would definitely need to increase my carbon amount over the diet that I currently eat <laughs> in order to maintain a high level amount of training. Climbing is different for a pretty simple reason, which is that the center of fatigue is in these very small muscles that are only a centimeter or two wide in your forearm. The muscles of your of your upper arm and your lower limb are much, much larger, can, can output much more energy. So they can play through vast amounts of glycogen in a very short time. You just, you just can't use that much glucose in your forearms so quickly. So I think that's part of the reason as well. And then also there's the characteristics of the actual training itself. If I went to somewhere like a sport crag in Spain, and I just did day after day of on-siting, like juggy 13A, then I would need to eat more carbohydrate. Because just the amount of arm pulling and more whole body climbing would increase the amount of glycogen I was able to plow through. So that in itself would increase the amount. But for hard bouldering, and even for red pointing on sport climbing, where if you're getting, you know, if you're getting really pumped and you're breathing hard as you would be if you were doing sprint running, then you've probably already fallen off. You can't use that much energy, otherwise it just doesn't it doesn't work. So it's the nature of climbing. You know, even I did a, I made a video on my YouTube channel about the keto diet and sport, and one thing that really came to mind was about the example of dry tooling. You know, climbing on steep walls with ice tools, and I was so I went out on my board and I was going around my board. On these, so you're holding onto these handles, so it's, it feels quite right. burly climbing, climbing, but still, my arms are not getting pumped. It's still the pump is still in your forearms, even when you're holding onto big holds. So I think that's the other issue is that the, the muscle mass is quite small, and I really that's my explanation. And it, well, I suppose that there is one more element to it, which is that your the amount of carbohydrate you need to eat is also dependent on the background diet. So if you eat a high carb diet, you need to eat lots of carbs. <laughs> but if you eat a low carb diet, you adapt to burning fat much, much more. So your RQ lowers, your respiratory quotient lowers, even at quite high exercise intensities. So the amount of carb carbohydrate you actually burn at a given intensity of exercise will reduce. And there is actually some new, it was a really nice new study by um, a guy called Andrew Kutnick and some colleagues who did some studies in, did a study in runners recently, and they saw evidence that um, the rate of fat burning, even at very high intensities of, I think it was 88% of VO2 max in running for, from memory, was a lot higher than the previous te textbook estimates. You know, the classic textbook graphs you know that there's a crossover point between fat oxidation and carbohydrate oxidation as exercise intensity increases. So as you approach maximum, the amount of fat you burn just drops off and drops off to almost zero. But it doesn't appear to be like that, especially if you're already adapted to a high fat diet for a long time. And so for all those reasons together, to me that explains why I've not had any issues eating that way. Well, I, thank you for you know, the little mini masterclass there on, on just how our bodies can adapt to different types of diets. I, f I find that super fascinating. Hopefully Casey was able to glean a lot from that as well. And that brings up maybe my final point in the nutrition chapter here. We'll see. But that's around how 
individuals respond to different types of diets. So again, famously, you've run a number of experiments on yourself from the all McDonald's patty diet, which was quite recent to, as you said, over the past many years, ketogenic and fasting and high carb and these kinds of things. Different people respond to different things. I, I don't think you've ever espoused a certain type of diet for uh, anyone but yourself. You're just bringing questions and potentially personally some conclusions to the table here just to evoke conversation, which I think is really great. Sometimes it evokes quite heated and spirited conversation. And one of those conversations is around the concept of meat itself and being highly ketogenic or almost on a full carnivorous diet as you have. And that's really supported your health in ways that you've documented, I think, quite eloquently. Others that are at the top of the field are kind of on the other end of that bell curve, if you will. If you look at Alex Magos or even Adam Andra and Alex Honnold and some others who, if haven't cut out meat totally, tend to consume more of a vegetarian diet. And I'm curious for the research that you've done, I believe even in that poll that you did of 4,000 climbers, there was a significantly higher percentage of climbers seemed to take part in a vegetarian diet. I think it was 15 or 17% or something like that you had found compared to maybe only a few percent in the general population. So this is a long-winded intro of just asking about a vegetarian diet amongst climbers. And while maybe it didn't work for you, what are any conclusions that you've drawn from that? Or could one reasonably think that if Alex Magos just ate a steak, he'd be our first climber to do 516. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I think the vegetarian diet and a whole and the diet that, that I've eaten, like a, a much more animal-based ketogenic diet, have a couple of very important things in common. One is they exclude Western junk food. <laughs> That's a big reason why they, they, they both work. And a, the, a vegetarian diet, a well-formulated vegetarian diet, is very different from a vegan diet. If we're talking about a vegan diet, that's a completely different conversation. But a vegetarian diet is a very broad term. It can mean very different things to different people. And so that's an important caveat. Like in my case, for example, I eat cheese, I eat eggs, so it's not extreme. Yeah. It's not it's not vegan. I think Alex yeah. Magos is vegan, for example, but I'm, I'm a little bit more in the middle where I'll have animal products, but I won't eat the animal meat, or I don't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so if, if someone who's is on a vegetarian diet, but they're eating some combination of eggs or dairy or fish, then that's a lot easier to reach an adequate level for many of the key nutrients that are low on a Western diet. Let's pick iron and iron as an example, but you know, protein and protein and especially different amino acids within the, within protein. I mean, eggs are eggs are one of the best foods you can get. This right right up there with any food. A really the top three would be um, ruminant liver, ruminant meat, and and eggs are really the three most nutritious foods you can eat. So if you include eggs, then you're <laughs> you're you're winning. I mean that. I, I post a lot. People actually make fun of me because I post about eggs all the time on my Instagram and, and how good they are. So, yeah. you know, eggs plus vegetables is an excellent diet. <laughs> That's good. And I mean, it's good for me personally, but I guess I'll take myself out of it for a second. I think an important distinction you just made, which is essentially neither of those ex diets on the extreme end are incorporating a lot of junk food. But is there anything on either diet? So let's say 
kind of highly carnivorous or highly vegetarian or vegan, or just for climbers in general, maybe somebody's just on kind of a down the middle diet that just, you know, they're a, a regular person who isn't eating a lot at McDonald's, but just, you know, has pasta for dinner and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch and oatmeal for breakfast or whatever the case may be, you know, chicken tacos, these kinds of things, what would be maybe considered a, a slightly healthier version of a normal diet. Through your research, have you found that there are certain deficiencies that uh, climbers in particular are experiencing that might be holding them back that could be helped with supplementation or with nutrients or micronutrients or things that might be impacting hormone levels? Any conclusions that you've been able to draw along those lines? Yeah, well, I mean, it's part of the reason of doing that McDonald's experiment was to point out that 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 meat, especially red meat, is actually a very healthy food. And, you know, many of the supplements that, that climbers and other athletes take are, are nutrients which are rich in, in animal foods. You know, it, it's always seemed like something that I felt I wanted to push back on a little bit is the idea that don't eat red meat, but take powdered cow tendons in a plastic bag instead, <laughs> collagen. Right. <laughs> or take... Creatine, which comes from meat, or carnitine, which comes from meat, or supplement powder protein in a plastic bag. You know, all, all, of, all of these all supplements that are most popular in, across sports nutrition, many of them come from animal foods. And even some of the others, the micronutrients, iron is, a, and iron is the most common deficiency in the world. Vitamin D, I mean, you mainly get from the sun, but, you know, your other sources are from animal foods in the diet. And then there's others like, you know, B12 and zinc and... Uh, vitamin A, retinol, you know, it's, there's, there's the whole suite of nutrients that are most commonly deficient tend to come from the animal foods. So I do think that they are an important component of the diet. So I think a vegan diet is probably the only diet which I would specifically recommend against. That's not to say that it, it can't be made to work. It, it definitely can, and there are plenty of examples of that. But it takes a lot of care and planning to, to make it work in a way that oh, that's sustainable. Often people feel brilliant when they first go on it because they're transitioning away from a Western diet with plenty of junk food. They go on a vegan diet, they remove the junk food, they feel brilliant. And that will last for two to six years maybe. But the numbers of people dropping off and having to abandon the vegan diet after six years is really pretty high. And that's usually because of health problems. And usually the poor nutrient density kind of catches up with people sooner or later. So the vegetarian diet is a brilliant sort of compromise. If you're if red meat's not your thing or meat in general is not your thing, then a vegetarian diet that includes some combination, ideally eggs, fatty fish is also brilliant if you if, you know you can tolerate or want to eat those things or, or or some dairy. They solve a lot of the a lot of the problems. I think the more the sort of more animal based diets can, can be more relevant not to a, a massive amount of people, but more to people who have specific health problems. So this is one of the problems of like talking to professional athletes and asking them what they eat and then just following that. Because right. very successful athletes are self-selected for already being extremely healthy people. They, they, they've, they've developed their, they, they maybe have a good set of genes which uh, protect them against problems, health problems across the board. And they've also had a very good um, develop, developmental nutrition. And then they maybe make some different choices when they're, when they're adults. 
and they can do just fine on that. So it's tricky when people who have specific health problems, as I have actually with overweight, but also some that we haven't mentioned, like things like mood problems, things like skin problems, you know, autoimmune disease. That's when um, so-called more more so-called extreme diets can be very useful, and that's so that's what's worked in my case. Uh, I, I, what it comes back to is if whatever diet you're on is working for you, great. <laughs> you you may well yet be leaving something on the table. There may be other benefits or gains, if you like, that you don't know that you could be having if you further improve your nutrient density. That's very difficult to know. There's only one way. Everyone, Every one of us is on this experiment of ourselves. <laughs> and unfortunately, we do not have data to at this point, and I won't do for a long time, to say, you should be on this diet, you should be on that diet. <laughs> we just don't know that yet. Uh, right. So I I tend to favor, for me personally, experimenting with with lots of different things and and trying to trying to come up with what works and trying to learn along the way. And as well as learning the basic principles of, of physiology and nutrition and all these things to try and support your decisions and make sense of your observations when they when they come but yeah if your diet is working for you great but if you're going to the crag and you can't do a morning at the crag without having to eat something to keep you going you know if you need to have a snack while you're in your training session just to get through the training session that to me is indicative of things not working out so well and if you need to be in this constant fight with your appetite in order to prevent yourself from gaining excess weight and then you need to diet back down to get back to a normal weight then that's indicative of things not working and maybe the mm. or, or or if you feel like you're battling against um craving for different foods that you that don't fit with your goals then again maybe this a different approach could work a little bit better uh, i'm sort of not i'm not dogmatic about about which diet you choose well, obviously within the within the scope of like, we all have a suite of nutrients that we have to get uh, at a certain level. And there is some individual variation in that. But beyond that, um, there are different strategies that, that work. And it doesn't surprise me that um, there are some athletes who are very successful on a carnivore diet to a vegetarian diet. <laughs> it would surprise me if um, some claimers, I'm, specifically climbers did very well on a vegan diet career long career long that would be surprising to me because i think it would be quite challenging to achieve sufficient nutrient density for that long that that would take a lot of planning and discipline i, I do think it's possible but i think it would be difficult well in, in alex magos's case maybe it's just pounds and pounds of carrots which is has been his not so secret secret to get him to, to where he is. But again, N, N equals one. And, and to your point, there's some self-selecting. It's it's a matter of trying to look at some, some larger data sets on that. Uh, I've got one more question here in the nutrition chapter from a listener, Nico, who asks if intermittent fasting is a valid way to fuel an athlete's body. Uh, I, I can already predict that your answer is going to be, well, I don't know, or it depends. So why don't we just look at your experience with it, as I'm sure you've played around with that, but also perhaps you've gleaned some information from that large scale data collection study that you did of those thousands of climbers mm -hmm. in the UK. 
with regard to intermittent fasting, which also seems to be somewhat of a, I don't know if fad is the right term, but it's, it seems to be quite popular in the scene, mm -hmm. at least in certain yeah. circles right now. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a fad because it, it is what everyone does all the time. Like every, everyone eats and then has a gap between their eating and that's different lengths. It's the, the idea that we would have continuous drip-fed calories at very regular intervals from the moment of waking to the moment we go to sleep, that's a phenomenon, that's a modern phenomenon of Western life. And that is actually, mm -hmm. that is not normal. To me, that's the fad diet. <laughs> and intermittent fasting is really normal for the vast bulk of the time under which our species evolved. <laughs> so I think it's a- How long are we strength. talking about? The length of the intermittent is probably key to define here yeah. then. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I mean, I would struggle to call anything more than like, I was, I would say an intermittent fast would be a day, a day of not eating anything. Some people would call that 24 hours, like dinner to dinner, but I would call it more like 36 mm -hmm. hours. Like, um, I had my last meal on Monday evening and then my next meal on Wednesday morning. Like that would be the, the shortest that I would personally call an intermittent fast. Um, okay. I, I think that the, the term time restricted eating is more useful for, um, having fewer meals in, in a day. And, and the reason I say that is just because um, it takes quite a long time for your, your insulin level to drop because you're absorbing foods well, well after your meal. You know, people think of like, you, you, have, a, you have a meal and then, you know, two hours later, like, you know, there's, there's no energy coming in, but you're still di digesting that meal. The energy is still coming in, especially if it's, if it's a fatty meal and especially if it's a whole food meal. Now, if it's a... If it's a donut or something or or ice cream, then you're going to be getting that that, that those calories a lot faster. And you have a big spike in insulin, and then possibly you will have a dip in energy quite quite quickly afterwards. So again, it comes back to Western junk food. That's the weird thing. That's the fad, <laughs> um, that's that's really causing all lots of problems. Um, but so assuming we're talking real food, whole foods like whole vegetables or animal meat or eggs or whatever. I would say like a, a, a whole day would be what I would call an intermittent fast. Now, why would you even consider doing that? Well, I think there's probably a few reasons. One is that athletes who are not professional athletes, who are not already predisposed to have excellent fat burning, may benefit from having longer periods between meals. It might help them to improve the function of their mitochondria and their cells and be able to burn fat at higher levels. And that usually the result of that, if they do it well, would be that they would feel they would have a more steady energy supply and they would have less of a, that roller coaster of energy across the day. I, I used to feel like that. And also when I eat a vegetarian diet, when I eat a very carb heavy diet, I, I have to be very mindful of that. I can't get through a training session without needing to eat something. And at the end of the training session, sometimes I feel very weak and shaky and, and actually quite irritable and I need to urgently eat. And I, I think that's probably because my, it, my fat oxidation is dropping off and I really have a bit of an energy crisis. So I find that if I were to do intermittent fasting, I would get a benefit from that and having a more steady energy supply. The thing is with nutrition, there can often be 
several different ways to get to the same result. I prefer not to do intermittent fasting and just eat a high fat, low carb diet all the time. And so your keto, the, the ketogenic diet is fed, is like an equivalent of the fasted state, but it's in the fed state. So you have all the benefits of fasting, but without the downsides of the energy restriction. So that's my preferred method. That's why I don't really do intermittent fasting myself. The only time I would, I would ever do intermittent fasting myself would be specifically if I wanted to lose fat, but I wouldn't do it on its own. I would layer it on top of a high fat, low carb diet. So I'm sort of, I have two signals pushing my, pushing my body towards burning fat and being reliant on that. And then you know, I, then I would find it easy to, uh, to lose excess body fat, but without the, without the energy crisis that often goes along with just straightforward calorie restriction. You know, if I just ate a, a standard Western mixed diet with fat and carbs, but I just ate less of it to lose weight, then I would have to deal with hunger and big fluctuations in energy. And I'd have to be very careful about like just riding that. So you're just, you're always trying to restrict, 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 and, but keep drip feeding calories so that you don't get too hungry. And I, I just, I find that very difficult to manage. And it actually puzzles me why so many nutritionists still recommend that as the default option. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I dare say it does work for a proportion of people. It works quite well, uh, but I think there's a big cohort of people for whom it doesn't work that well for. It certainly doesn't work well for me. So I don't really feel like I need intermittent fasting because the, the, the high fat, low carb diet just does a better job without all the downsides of fasting. And so you're not keeping track of your calories on the daily when you're doing a high fat, high protein, low carb diet compared to myself, as I, we were talking about, I might want to shave five pounds here in the fall. And I do have a standard mixed diet vegetarian where I am going to probably pay attention. I'm going to cut out the, you know, the pastry that I might have right now in the afternoon or the beer or something mm -hmm. like that. I'm not sure how much I'll be feeling hungry, but I probably will. I'll probably be aware that I'm uh, a little hungrier than maybe normal. And it's interesting to me that you've you wrestled with weight far more so than I have, but you're not keeping track of calories and you're managing your weight just the same. I, I have to keep track of calories if I'm eating a high carb diet, otherwise I'll just gain excess fat. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to kind of go through that, that, that route if you like. And it, I just find that it just comes with too many problems. It comes with the, that constant psychology of constantly trying to restrict your food intake. It's, it's very right. challenging. And, and the minute you stop, you go right back to where you were. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind right. of true with any, with any diet that if you don't, if you don't stick to it, you won't have the results. But what, if I, with the, the high fat approach, basically just eating animal foods, just like meat, eggs, and high fat dairy. Um, then I feel that I will just, I just end up at, at my target weight without having to restrict calories. If I want to accelerate the process, then I could restrict calories or I could add an intermittent fasting. If I, you know, if I wanted to drop a kilo by next week, for example, <laughs> but I, that's the kind of thing I would have done in the past, but these days I, I don't really need to do that. I just, again, I, I just pay attention to the type of food rather than the amount. And eating that way, which works well for me, 
then the results just come along with the diet. I don't need to, I don't need to track it to make it work. I don't need to restrict because I mean, ultimately, like you know, tracking calories it, it has two functions. It's either to um, stop you eating too many calories or check that you're you're actually restricting as much as you are aiming to restrict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, this alternative approach removes all that altogether. I just need to follow my appetite and then just have the results. And that there wraps up just the first half of this epic conversation with Professor McLeod. I hope your head isn't spinning too much after all those assumption-challenging perspectives that he laid out for us, but I think it's good for us. I mean, it was good for me, at least. Now, if you want more, the extended version of this episode offers up some really great training content if you'd like to geek out over that, including Dave's exact hangboard routine and also what he sees as preventing people in their 30s and 40s from being able to train even harder than those in their 20s. That was pretty eye-opening for me. Now, that's usually behind a membership paywall, but right now you can access those amazing stories for free with a Patreon or Apple subscriptions trial. It'll also give you free access to the entire library of pro clinics that I put out, uncut videos, and other bonus content. So if you'd like to unlock a ton of extra material, now is the time to see if it's worth it. Now, I think you're going to find a lot of value in it and stick around. I hope you do. But if not, or if you can't afford it or whatever, I totally get it. You can just cancel before the free trial's over and you won't be charged a penny. I really appreciate your support, you guys. It's what keeps me going over here in the podcast slash utility closet. So thank you. You can just hit those links in your podcast player. Just scroll down and you'll find them. Or swing over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to sign up for free. Oh my gosh, it's so cool. Now you can find all of Dave's amazing content over on his website, davemcleod.com, which will also link you to his incredible YouTube channel his Instagram page, all of that stuff. You can buy his books, watch his videos, read his blogs. It's all right over there. Just a huge thanks and appreciation to our show's sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. That's Fizzy Vantage, Scarpa, and Frictitious Climbing. You all are just the best. You can check your show notes for links and special discounts from those guys that are only available to struggle listeners. Let's go. All right, y'all, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Now, if you're a patron or subscriber, listen through the outro music here at the end, and that is when your bonus content will begin. And hey, if you want even more Struggle content and a free sticker, sign up for the Struggle newsletter. You can just pop over to thestruggleclimbingshow.com, fill in your email address. I only send out like one or two emails a month, and it has some cool stuff and secret deals in there. So if you like cool stuff and secret deals, then check it out. Hey, did you know that The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation? Well, they are doing amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can get inspired by their latest grant recipients over at honnoldfoundation.org. Toss them some love if you can. They are truly doing impactful work out there. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you are struggling out there like I am struggling out here, well, just remember, the struggle makes us stronger. See you soon.